This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 1st of January 2019, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my Happy New Year co-host, Jan. Happy New Year, Dave. Happy New Year, Jan. Hope you had a good Christmas. Oh, yeah, that was great. It's a long time ago now. Yeah, it's almost last year. It is last year. It is last year. (laughs) Well, it's last year as we talk to our listeners. It's not quite last year as we record, but hey. Yes, I mean, I do like the fact that you emphasize the 2019 in the intro there. I mean, as usual, we make a lot of mistakes there. And yes, I hadn't changed it in the little notes. (laughs) As always, I am the consummate professional. Well... Occasionally. Uh, yes, but let's not ask Dave at what specifically. <laughs> That's also a very good point. Indeed. So, first podcast episode release of 2019. Yeah. It'll be the start of many more. It's our fourth year, fifth year? I don't know. I can't count. I'm too big data, but I can't count. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> need a cluster to count that far, surely. Uh, oh, at least two clusters, even for disaster recovery. But that was last episode. It was. Uh, but before we go into the, this episode, uh, New Year, new giveaways. We've got freebies to give out again. We do. We've got uh, Hortonworks, who's sponsoring us again with uh, free entry tickets to the Dataworks summits that are going on. The Melbourne Summit, which is going on at the 6th of February 2019, uh, which was actually delayed from last year due to mm-hmm. reasons. I have no idea why, but... The good thing is that if you want to go and you don't have a ticket yet, we have freebies. Uh, I'll have a tweet out uh, at the at Hadoopcast tweet tag where it's, it's going to give you an email address. Just send me an email, tell me how many tickets you want. Uh, we have a limited supply, so don't ask for 20 because I can't give you that. <laughs> but up to one or two should be good. And um, yeah, just, uh, just remember it's a free entry ticket to the summit. It does not include a lodging, boarding, traveling, eating, whatever. That's still on you. And? And also, uh, I was a bit early this time. I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Dataworks Summit Barcelona, that's a European version of the Dataworks Summit, is also uh, around the corner. That one has, starts at the 18th of March, 2019. Uh, we don't have freebies yet, but we will have freebies soon. Hortonworks has already agreed to sponsor us with a couple of entry tickets there. We'll uh, have something on the Twitter feed when that becomes available. But in the meantime, I have already updated a dashboard for these uh, sessions on the summit there. Uh, frequent listeners will maybe remember I did a dashboard like this for the uh, San Jose and was it the Berlin one? Yeah. The last couple ones. So the new one's up and running already. It's still uh, small because it's uh, the agenda, the, the, the sessions agenda isn't completely finalized yet. So there's only 49 sessions at the moment. I do expect more to be added there, and I will be updating the dashboard from time to time as well. Uh, you can find the dashboard at aka.ms slash dws2019ba. That's easy to remember because that's Dataworks Summit 2019ba for Barcelona. If link in the show notes, no doubt. Link will be in the show notes, and I'll tweet about it too because, hey, it's extra work, so I have to make sure my boss knows I'm doing something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is also the first time that I've pretty much automated it completely, which also means I'm not watching it as eagle-eyed as normally. So if listeners, if you see something weird on the dashboard, drop me a note <laughs> <laughs> so I can fix it up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
So Databricks Summits are in the future. They're coming there soon. And uh, with a bit of luck, I think we both should be at the Barcelona one, right? I would think so. I mean, that is the uh, the goal. Yep, indeed. Let's see how that works out. And, so yeah, that's all I had for housekeeping stuff. Yeah, so you, you kind of hinted uh, a little bit earlier on towards what we're primarily going to be talking about today, which is when we did our episode around disaster recovery, the the sort of the topic of sort of dev test and production kind of snuck in there as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided that would be a good good choice for a session uh, further on down the line. And uh, this is that session. Um We've, it's a year later, so that's really yeah, exactly. On the line. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's the the idea around development, test, and production from a, a life cycles perspective is uh, well, very well established, mostly well understood by people. Um, but in my, at least in, in my experience, it's something that is less well understood in a big data connotation because there's a number of things that make the typical development test and production kind of um, methods of doing things uh, a little bit more awkward. So we're going to run through some of the things that we see happening um, with various different organizations that are doing this at some scale uh, to give you know our listeners an idea of you know, what other people are doing maybe some of the best practices around it and uh, some of the different approaches that people can do depending on, you know, what their, uh, uh, what their methods are. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, uh, there are two sort of main um, categories of things that feed into this kind of whole development test and production. Um, The first being the underlying infrastructure, um, for me, the the infrastructure it, itself and having development, test, and production of those things is important. Um, but to a certain extent, it is separate from the the actual you know the data and the operational life cycle of things, which uh, often can be very different. Um, is that sort of a similar pattern that you see, Jan? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay, that was easy. Yeah, I'm just perfect, uh, perfect just agreement. Lay down the, uh, <laughs> the groundwork before I start commenting. <laughs> so there are differences, though. I think you would agree between um, when you're talking about development, test, and production for the underlying infrastructure. There are differences between when you're talking about cloud uh, versus on-prem. Typically, when you're talking about um, dev test and prod infrastructure for on-prem, it's somewhat different to cloud. You will have a, generally speaking, a relatively fixed pool of hardware um, that will be only quite slow changing. Um, you know, some people will have some sort of ability to burst into new hardware as it is racked and stacked, um, but you know that's usually. A sort of fairly limited basis. Um, some people talk about having um, private cloud infrastructure, and mm-hmm. while that is, you know, definitely a thing, uh, to me, the, that's just it's this. You've still got the same problem. You can't. You can only burst to the mm-hmm. limit of the private cloud infrastructure that you have deployed. It's not a 
essentially limitless um, or essentially limitless uh, environment like a public cloud should be for most people. Most people aren't going to burst beyond the capability that you know, a large public cloud like uh, AWS or Azure or um, Google Cloud have. So for the most part, your infrastructure is you know, relatively fixed or slowly changing and you have some sort of growth predictions and all that sort of thing. So with on-prem. So when you're talking about multi-tenancy, um, development, test, and production can exist as separate tenants. Um, most of the time, on-prem infrastructure is in some way, shape, or form always on. Now, nodes can... Get, you know, can uh, go into power save modes and all those sort of thing, but they are for the most point always powered up. So development, test, and production, in terms of the workflows and the users that are uh, using it, you know, can very much coexist on single clusters. So when we're talking about the um, you know, the, the methods that are used for doing that, it's typically yarn capacity scheduler queues. Um, to separate the consumption of resources to ensure that, you know, development workloads can't um, consume too much resource on the cluster that would impact production workloads and so on. But also, if production workloads are, you know, at a point where there is extra spare capacity, then there's no reason why uh, development workloads can't consume a, a large chunk of that available capacity until production requires it. So prioritization between queues and all that sort of thing. Um, the other thing with dev test and prod workloads is typically you'll have different types of users accessing, the, accessing those different uh, areas and accessing different data. So having some sort of security policies with something like Ranger in place to ensure that people can only see the kinds of data that they should be accessing. So Ranger policies for access to data, but also data masking and that sort of mm -hmm. thing as well. Um, the final area that you'll probably also see here is definitely HDFS encryption zones. If you've got um, zones of data where it is um, very much sensitive data, should only be accessed by automated um, facilities that you know, need that data and have that uh, broad access to it, then you know, you might actually have a completely different encryption key for that compared to some of the more standard data that you have in other zones. So development, we're, we're talking about here about is development, test, and production all on uh, a single multi-tenant cluster. Now, this is still, um, it's, it's getting more and more commonplace. There are some organizations that have been doing this for, um, yeah, best part of four or five years, certainly. Um, but it is still something that for organizations just getting into this, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a strange conversation to have for them because they're just not used to, uh, doing this sort of thing, combining development, test and production workloads on a single environment. Um, in some cases they will have to make, you know, core policy changes mm. um, in order to make something like this even possible within their organization. And for some organizations, organization, it's just too much of a stretch. It's too much of a change to their existing policies. So they, they you know, typically, sometimes they don't go down this route, at least not initially. Um, 
So one of the reasons why this makes sense is development, test, and production are often looking at the same data or variants of the same data. Um, when we talk about um, development and, and and testing from a machine learning perspective, well, development is often uh, encapsulates the training of the models. Mm-hmm. And actually, the training of the models requires a lot more data. So actually having uh, typically... A, um, if you're talking about development, test, and production, development environment would be relatively small. A test environment might be larger, and production would be you know the full scale. But if we're talking about something like a machine learning workload, well, actually, the training of the model requires as much data as possible. It's very difficult to justify um, a development environment that is of the same scale as your production environment in terms of you know, data volumes and that sort of thing. So... That's why this idea of a single multi-tenant environment, and yes, you can mask data or use format-preserving encryption or all these kind of clever things to ensure that you know data scientists maybe don't see the, the real actual data, but they see something that's a close enough approximation that their, their models are able to be trained on it. So anything yeah. else to add on that? Yeah, because um, I think we need to touch on different ways of using those clusters. Because you've been talking about uh, training a model, and there's actually two uh, two ways to train a model. That's not what I mean, but two intentions to train a model. First mm-hmm. intention may be to see, okay, I'm a developer. I've never used uh, random forest before. Yep. I'm assuming you have, but let's say I just want to play with random forest to find out what the hypertuning parameters do and things like that. That does involve training models. That does not involve requiring production data, sizes, yeah. or even shape. Because that's just a developer coding little scripts, coding little codelets, just to get experience with the, com- with the command structure, with the, with the syntax, with the programming language they're using, with this whole new uh, notebook approach of working. For all of these kinds of things, it could, and I do say could, makes sense to put that on a separate cluster entirely. Mm -hmm. But that's where it ends. The moment that your developer, your data scientist developer, is actually, uh, I'd call that, uh, um, um, uh, looping over different approaches of training the production model, iterating on that model, adding new uh, features, figuring out which features make sense and don't make sense, that is often seen by traditional companies as development. So you need dev test for that. And there it doesn't make sense because as you yeah. said, you need to have not just the size of the data, but the scheme of the data and the actual real data to see if your model performs correctly because it's a supervised learning usually, which means you need to have tagged data and you're doing a model on dummy data. Yet yeah, again, that can make sense if you're, figuring out what a random forest is and what the difference between linear and, and logistic regression is. Uh, hint, if you don't know, you're not a data scientist. Um, <laughs> but that's not how it works in production. So when I talk to my customers, I often have the discussion about, yes, but this data scientist developer is not a developer. And I often compare it to the CEO of a company. The whole industry is moving towards self-service BI where people use things yeah. like Power BI, Tableau, Click, uh, whatever they are out there, uh, know, knowledge from last episode, <laughs> <laughs> to to let the C-level people do their own reporting, digging into it. 
This is similar to a data scientist approach, but nobody's going to call the CEO or the CFO a developer. Indeed. They are not developing. They do not work on dev test environments. They are using production workflows on production data in production environments to make production, in this case, a report or conclusion or whatever dashboard. Yep. And that usually helps a little bit. Now, in practice, do you often see the actual multi-tenancy approach, so everything, the dev test prod on one hardware cluster, or do you still more often see on-premise that people really have the different clusters out there? So it's very much a mix. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that there is all, there is still a need for separate development mm-hmm. test and production infrastructure, um, but that is... Um, that's more often used for the actual testing of upgrading the infrastructure layers. Yeah, so if you're making, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're making, um, you know, significant OS updates, you know, new version of Spark updates, there. exactly, rolling out a new version of Spark or mm-hmm. uh, or Hive, or you know, applying some uh, platform changes going from HDP. You know, two five to two six or whatever it might be, <laughs> those changes need significant yep. amounts of testing. You yep. you yep. need yep. to make sure that you're you know, running your your regression testing mm-hmm. against you know the the workloads that you run in that sort of uh, that sort of nature of upgrade to make sure that that is going to be effective in production and you're not going to hit any uh, any issues. So there is still a need for development mm-hmm. test and production yeah. infrastructure. This this doesn't make that go away. But yeah, also it for does. the surrounding stuff, right? Because a lot of people that talk big data, they think Hive, they think Spark, uh, maybe a Zookeeper. Uh, oh, yeah, that's about it. But the there's so much scripting going on there to interact, yeah. integrate with the, 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 the data feeders, the, the data sources around you. Yep. That all has a number of protocols, libraries, applications, or even find smaller frameworks involved there that also need regression testing whenever a version upgrade happens or whenever you start using that software, that product, in a different way. You're going from batch to streaming, from streaming to real time. That all changes things. And doing that on a production cluster when you don't really know what it's going to affect uh, might not be the best idea between Christmas and January. Indeed, and not to mention, not only to mention that, but also think about people that are rolling multiple um, third-party ISV um, solutions integrated mm-hmm. into this. I mean, if you've got you know Golden Gate in place between your your Oracle and your big data environment, if you've got you know SaaS and uh, SAP integrated in some way, shape, or form, you know either running on top of or running next to uh, whatever it might be. All those things will also need uh, testing in that same kind of way. So it it doesn't it doesn't um, remove the need for development, test, and production. Mm-hmm. What it does, though, is it gives you the ability to free yourself from having to have dev, test, and production at the same sort of scale yep. as you would need if you were doing a lot of the operational side of things yeah, and the practical. development side of things yeah. yeah i think i think it's a better way to look at the roles that are using your data cluster and yeah. which of them should be using dev test and which shouldn't be i mean a data scientist as i said before should always be running on the production cluster pretty much because when he's doing his little programming tests he can do it on his laptop he doesn't need a cluster for that yep a data engineer because he's interacting with that ecosystem with those data sources he'll probably be on, be on both 
Yeah. And uh, the infrastructure framework management, which is uh, getting close and close to the, the core IT uh, stuff, let's yeah, say, yeah. those will definitely need a dev test prod. But whenever I see a data scientist being pushed on a, a dev of test cluster, I, 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 I pity the poor guy, girl. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just makes life... It just makes life harder. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it is an awkward conversation now, and, and I do understand. I've I've had a number of conversations with large organisations that have these kind of policies in place, and yeah. that you know they're just yeah. that their their answer is we just can't do that, and I. Yeah. Yeah, well, but as you said, it's it's an old way of thinking because in the yeah. old olden days you had security <laughs> through isolation. If I make my dev test clusters completely separate from the internet, nobody can break in and so on. And my production cluster, I have to focus on security, on access control, authorization. That's where I put my effort. But dev test, uh, we don't have to do that. We just cut it off from the internet. And these days, with uh, all these things like agility and fast and moving and uh, digital transformation, whatever, all the buzzwords being out there, one of the things that it has brought with it is the fact that you need to be fast. And you can't be fast in isolated inf- solutions. Because one of the examples I had where, we're deaf, uh, where we're the, the, the data scientist was running on a Spark cluster and he was not able to reach the internet. So he couldn't download uh, weather data or an update from a data set that was totally closed off. He couldn't work that way. He needed to get that open. And that was a big problem because in their dev test environment, there was not, it was isolated. He wasn't able to get out there. Today, especially, we're going to go to cloud in a second, uh, looking at the notes, but you have to take your security to the limit on all of those sort of surroundings. Unless if you're just doing the dev test the way we talked about, if just doing new version testing, regression testing, yeah, fine. You don't need much uh, inter- uh, integration with the rest of the world for that. But if you really are forcing your data scientists into a dev test environment because of the traditional way of thinking, you will have to secure your dev test environment identically as you're t- the, uh, closing off your production environment because it will need yeah. all the connections. Yeah. I would also say that um, the speed and the agility that organizations are moving more, you know, further and further towards, if you do go ahead and, you know, hamstring yourself with that kind of legacy approach, uh, you know, will you be around in another five years? Exactly. Uh, like organizations are outpacing their competition by using technologies like this, by driving value into the business, by being just by being faster than their competition about realizing the, the, the savings or the additional value add, you know, by doing things like this. It's also a great motivator because this is actually why C level pushes down on it to make them change their traditional way of thinking because C-level wants that agility, they want that speed, and IT should never be restricting. It should be uh, making stuff available, uh, making people be aware of new things and maybe able to use new stuff. It shouldn't be a barrier. And in my experience, I'm not going to say we abuse it because you have to work with your clients, with your customers, with with your partners, but that desire to not be the slowest uh, student in the in the classroom to, to be uh, on that wave really helps in making people rebuild or rethink how their IT infrastructure is being set up yeah i think that we've definitely 
started to move into more of a um, more of a position now where IT and IT security is it becoming less of a barrier, is becoming less of a part of the organization that's saying no, but it, it it is having to change and it is now saying, you know, how can we help? How can we how can we get you to what you need to do? And I think that's been a that's been a positive shift that I've mm-hmm. seen over the last kind of five or six years, I think, that we've we've gone through a lot of the the pain of the the sort of the legacy um the legacy world and i i think i do think that things are changing for the better in that sense so that i think is the on-prem stuff um for the most part rounded out dev test and prod for the the workloads you can have that on a single environment Dev test and prod for the underlying infrastructure. You probably still need to think about having that as as some sort of uh, separate beast. Um, but with cloud, I think it's safe to say that um, it's a little bit different. Well, it's a little bit different because people start with a different approach in mind. Because because the the agility, the dynamics, the flexibility that the cloud offers you is there, and that's usually the reason why people go to the cloud. They've pretty much, in the best case scenario, already changed their traditional thinking to the new way of thinking. Yep. The disadvantage is that because it's so easy to spin up a little cluster in the cloud, well, we can do dev test. It's easy, right? We don't need to have any hardware bought. It's easy. It's uh, flexible. So let's let's do it anyway. <laughs> so at a certain point, it actually sabotages itself a little bit. But um, the biggest issue is that, that, that you actually have the same problems with security, that, you, that, you, that your, your data scientist still needs to have access to the data sources and still need to have your data available. So it doesn't change that much. It just allows you to spin up, down, and size your clusters dynamically more easily. It's not yep. totally automatic. It still has uh, the laws of physics still apply, but there's a little bit, there's more flexibility in there. Um uh, one big difference for the cloud is the fact that you don't have your storage layer attached to your compute layer because the traditional yep. on-premise structure uh, Hadoop clusters, unless you're using that stuff from uh, Isilon, if I'm mistaking, or something similar, you're, you will have hard disks in your chassis and they'll have data locality and that's just how it works. In a public cloud and even a private cloud for that matter, you don't have data locality because your storage is on a NAS SAN structure somewhere off on the network. The advantage of that is that uh, in the public cloud, you can actually have multiple clusters run on the same data layer. You can have the same data set, the same data blob of CSV files or whatever, available to multiple uh, clusters simultaneously. Now, this is not without uh, danger. Yeah. For people that are heard around in the old SCSI days, where you had SCSI cables connecting uh, your external <laughs> disks to each other, I'm pretty sure we all had two computers SCSI'd up to the same external disk, and now we have twice the same, the twice the amount of storage, right? Yeah, it doesn't really work yeah. that way. But if you have it under control, if you make sure that the different clusters only access data that they are, or change data, mutate data that they are the boss of, between air quotes, yep. then it is actually quite feasible to make this work. And things like uh, ACLs and uh, data permissions uh, on data files, 
can actually make this quite foolproof. It's just that keep it in mind. That's the only thing. But it's a lot easier to 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 spin up a test dev system that is still able to access your uh, production data. But again, that does mean your dev test needs to be in the same kind of security enrollment as your production environment is. Yeah. And the, the other thing around this, and you sort of hinted towards it, but I'd like to kind of explicitly call it out, is um, the whole idea around cloud is that you, you typically don't spend very much time going through upgrading per se. So, you know, if you're going from a one, one OS release to another or one... Um, you know, data platform, HTTP or CDH release to another, you typically wouldn't go through the process and the pain of upgrading, no. you know, the underlying layer because, well, there's Don't just no need. Right. You just deployed, a f- you just deploy a fresh one. Yeah. You still need to run all of those same kind of integration upgrade tests to make sure that, you know, the workload that you ran before on your previous generation of the platform comes out with the same results as the one that you run mm-hmm. on your new version. One plus one nice, still Well, yeah. But the <laughs> nice thing is that if it doesn't, if there, there are any problems, well, you know, you haven't just completely painted yourself into a corner. You've still got the old environment running until you, you know, squeeze out any of those last little bugs or issues. Now, yeah. it's not for free. Like the, you still need to take the time to put in, you know, the automation to make sure that your yes. your build and that's that's really where a lot of the people think that you just get all this stuff for free, but you don't. You need to spend a lot of time and effort making sure that your deployments are as automated as yes. possible, as foolproof as possible, because whenever there's any kind of human in the loop, there's the potential to introduce error. So and definitely these need to be, yeah, you, you literally, you just want to change a couple of values in a config file that, you know, say instead of deploying, you know, this AMI or this, you know, these repos mm-hmm. from uh, your big data provider, Instead, you're doing this AMI and these repos or whatever it might be, the machine images. And that really should be almost all that you change. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if I look at the customers that I have that are further advanced in this, that I actually have infrastructure as code, when they go to a new version of a certain software part, they don't manually change variables. They give an array of possible valuables, let the system spin up 100 clusters, run their own private uh, benchmarks, so not, not synthetic benchmarks, but their own, cl- their own queries, their own uh, yep. notebooks, yep. see which ones perform the best, and then let the system itself decide, okay, these are the best uh, uh, parameters to set up the new cluster with the new versions. Yep. And there's only, yep. if, you, if you don't have configuration management and your whole build uh, tree automated completely, you can't do that. I I mean, I would say that configuration management should be mandatory, whether you're talking about on-prem or cloud. But I think, sadly, it's still, there are still organizations I know of that are doing on-prem that are not doing it. I don't, I don't really think it's possible to, I mean, sure, it is possible to do cloud without configuration management. You would have to be insane and you will fail, but it is possible. doesn't hurt. People love insanity. You will be surprised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the problem I, is usually that a lot of the things, it, it, we're over that hump at the moment, but uh, if I look about a year, two years ago, a lot of the big data things were like uh, science projects and hobbies that suddenly became interesting and became production stuff. 
Yeah. And because they never started it as a infrastructure, an enterprise oh, project, yeah. they never started with CSV, with configuration management kits, whatever. And then at a certain point, it needs to be integrated. And that's such a pain. At that yeah, retro, retrofitting configuration management to something is one of the most miserable experiences <laughs> that anyone will ever have to go through. But so, bite the bullet, do it. Yeah, do it. Well, do it from the beginning. Don't, don't, don't kind of, don't be that organization that has to then bite the bullet afterwards because all you will do is slow everything down to a crawl. Like implementing configuration management from the beginning feels slow. Believe me, it's no way near as slow as having to try and retrofit configuration management to something after the fact. That is truly miserable. Um, so yeah, don't be that. Don't don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. It's a lot more don't be fun that to just mug around. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> I, I, I think it was on uh, on Top Gear. I hear that years ago, where they said it's more fun to drive fast in a slow car than slow in a fast car. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but still, the fast car will get you there faster. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. if it's not that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so. If we've talked about on-prem and we've talked about uh, cloud, there is, of course, a uh, a sort of a third option, which is why not have both? Go hybrid. Um, so that's kind of electric um, and petrol, yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's usually where how the uh, traditional companies move to the cloud because dev test is seen as a sunk cost that you don't need all the time. Mm-hmm. We can discuss that. And being able mm-hmm. to burst to a cloud at that point to have your dev test up and running with small infrastructures, uh, more dynamic scalability does need to be there all the time. That's one of the first times I see people entering cloud when they move their dev test to the cloud environment. Yeah. yeah. And that's a perfectly viable way of working. Yeah, Again, it's a nice, with all of the caveats a, we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice way to dip your toes into cloud, actually, I think. It, it does mean, though, that, you know, the uh, the sort of five-minute rant that uh, that I just went off on, on configuration <laughs> management, um, it becomes incredibly important, though, if you're looking at dev and test um, in a, in, you know, in a cloud and your production still is on-prem, configuration management becomes even more important because now mm-hmm. you're looking at configuration management across multiple different, very, very separate infrastructures. And you need yes. to make sure that if you're deploying something in development and test, and that all works, that the configurations that you deployed in dev and test are also the same configurations that you then deploy in production afterwards. Yeah. Um, so again, and, configuration usually, management is your friend. Yeah, usually it's not possible because of the completely different network and structure between the cloud and on-premise things. So while I usually see people put in their dev into the cloud, test, which is the closest to the production uh, in the, yeah. uh, the flow usually, that should always be a complete copy of your production environment. I mean, the closer that the copy is, the, the, the more identical those two are, the better your test environment will do its purpose of testing yep. your production infrastructure. Having your tests in the cloud, making that work brilliantly, and then think I'll move it to to into the to the on-premise environment, and that's gonna work. Yeah. Ooh, that's you're opening up for a world of hurt there. Yeah, yeah. But for dev, yeah, yeah. But the, there are there are some environments where the the agility of cloud and the ability to spin things up and down makes less sense. 
So if you're if you're running something that is you know fully twenty four by seven, so whether you've got a uh, you know a follow the sun user base, maybe it's not such a good option for you. But then maybe it is a good option for you if actually your customers are coming from you know, all the way around the world. Then actually maybe having separate infrastructure in multiple across multiple different availability zones is is something that that makes sense like that. So mm-hmm. it's it's. It's a very much case by case as to as to how this um, how this could make sense, and also the other one that sort of the the scale up and scale down is is something that needs very careful consideration is if you're doing any form of continuous kind of streaming use cases. Again, maybe a perfect fit for for cloud, um, and yeah, maybe it does still benefit from the ability to scale up and scale down. But you need to understand the, um, the the dials and bells and whistles that you'll need to to deal with in mm. those kind of situations. Uh, in my in my experience, streaming really fits well to the cloud. I mean, quite often, not always, but quite often, your source your data sources are already in the cloud, so that's already the data gravity is already taken care of there. And streaming use cases also typically have a cadence where they have peaks and, and valleys where you need a lot of infrastructure, not a lot of infrastructure. So it works very well, again, with all the configuration management included and stuff like that. Now, if you're yep. in a factory on-premise and you need to do streaming of sensor data and they will never leave the factory, uh, yeah, ask yourself the question, do a good uh, business case, uh, cost yeah. value, see if, if it makes sense or not. Um, having a high-tech data center in your production factory may not be the best choice. I mean, they don't really have the same kind of environments uh, requirements. So that may be a reason to go to a cloud. Um, but again, if you as a company have decided to go cloud first and put everything in the cloud, then sure, hey, everything goes yeah. in the cloud. If you yeah. still have an on-prem data center, then yeah, if you're doing twenty-four-seven stuff, always look if that still makes sense. And uh, not only look at cost; cost is one op- option there. Also look at manageability, disaster recovery things, things we talked about last time. Yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of glasses to look through to look at: is cloud a good choice for me or not? Of course, with my Microsoft hat on, I will say Azure is always the best for you. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put it out there. <laughs> But uh, no, when I talk to my customers, um, that's the brilliant. Uh, that's one of the brilliant things in my my job description. I can actually tell a customer for this, sir, I would not go to cloud. Yeah, and there are there are definitely situations where that makes sense. Yeah, as you say, one of the one of the key things is definitely that that the data gravity that you hit on there. Mm, that's definitely look one at, of them. Just look at look at where your data is coming from. If your data is coming all the way across the across or going you know, to a huge yeah going going to or coming from a huge variety of internet based locations, then cloud may well be absolutely perfect for you. Mm-hmm. If it's all coming from a uh, an on prem manufacturing site and you have a data center next door to it, eh. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Again. Trying the, the straight line is the shortest distance between two points, and if you have to make a big curve to to move to a cloud for something, and unless you really need to, because you're using a certain product that is only available in a cloud service environment, and yeah, it's yeah. gonna have your data movement. But data moving, def- big data moving, especially, is always an expensive proposition. Yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, that's that's the sort of the the first chunk of stuff mm-hmm. really around the the largely the infrastructure. Oh, I got I got one one more thing I want to add here before I'm, I'm feeling you are closing it. off here. And there's one exception when big data dev test goes the traditional way, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and that's when you're using a Hadoop cluster as a component underneath a application. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of uh, BI tools can spin off their uh, analytics to a Hadoop cluster, do the calculations there, and then bring it back again. Yep. In that case, that Hadoop cluster is not your main um, tool you're working with. You're working with that higher layer tool, and the Hadoop cluster is simply part of that tool, just like you're using a disk or a CPU or a piece of memory. In that case, look at what that top-level product needs, how that is set up, if that requires dev test or not, and just duplicate. Because if you're yep. trying to pull those things apart, typically you will have a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I was just saying, so when we started out this uh, recording this, we were, we were thinking that we would kind of rattle through a whole load of stuff. But uh, we're sort of a bit about 40 minutes in, and we've really only covered um, the sort of the infrastructure lifecycle side of things and a bit of the application side of things. But we haven't really talked about all of the data lifecycle side of things. Mm -hmm. So um, executive decision, I think we will save (laughs) the whole kind of data lifecycle conversation part of dev, test, and prod for another episode. Sounds like a plan. I mean, In all this case, is a still hangover from New Year's Day anyway, from all of, so. Yeah, quite right too. But this has obviously been a, a, a great episode to help them through that uh, New, Year, <laughs> New Year's Day hangover. Uh, listeners, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that's all it from right me. Then. If that's all from you, it's all the time you have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data infrastructure. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using a two-cast tag. Uh, keep an eye on it for those freebies we talked about at the beginning of this episode. You can contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Happy New Year! See you there.